Welcome to Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Christian Nick. Christine, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. Happy to be invited and happy to start with you today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to Christian. Tell me, I know you're German, but I don't know, is it Ingolstadt or somewhere I saw that, you, did you grow up there? No, I was growing up my entire life in Germany, but however, I was living in Ireland for six years where sometimes that Irish slang might come out when I want it. I saw, I saw you went to, you did an MBA in Cork. I know, and some people really claim that it's a real capital of Ireland with a very unique accent. And I could be probably the only German guy who actually took on some of that part of the accent, which my UCC friends would be really happy about. But all the lads that I'm knowing in Dublin are like always, why are you giving me that country accent? Yeah, it's funny, actually. There was a a woman years ago, she was Italian, in Oracle, I think when you were there, and she had spent a few years in Cork. And it was so funny to hear the uh, Italian speak with a Cork accent. Uh, oh, it, it, that one. Hi. Uh, yeah, yeah so shout funny. out to Norma. Uh, anyway, no, I, I did ask you, sorry, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and, and what your, your childhood was like. I think about my childhood, it's not super, super special. I was growing up in the in a small city, in a small village, right in the middle of Germany, a town called like Kassel, pretty blue collar environment, not very like academical background, super focused on on construction background, construction businesses, a lot of craftsmanship, mm-hmm. blue color environment. Normal childhood, like a lot of kids back in the days in the pre-technology, pre-cell phone time, spending a lot of time outside, building things in the forests, playing football. So I would say like a typical back in the days, normal childhood, spending a lot of time outside from a very normal, easygoing background. Mm. Did you have any sense when you were that age what you wanted to be when you were an adult? This is actually a funny and interesting question because (laughs) I think that changes all the time. And if you would have asked me at the age of 3, 5, 10 or 15, I probably would have given you all the time completely different answers. But if I'm looking back into the first time where I consciously can remember who and what I would like to be when I'm an adult, it was probably at the age of 6 or 7 when I started to play football by myself. And it was in the beginning of the 90s. I started to play soccer in 1991, 1992. Immediately became a fan of that big German team, uh, FC Bayern Munich. And in 1992, one of the biggest German players that we had, which back in the days was Lothar Matthäus, moved back from Inter Milan to Bayern in 1992. And he was just winning, I think, the Ballon d'Or, the trophy as the best player in the world. And I got the jersey at the age of seven with his name and his number on it. So I wanted to be Lothar Matthäus and I wanted to be a professional football player back in the days. How did that work out? I have a lot of limitations in my life, in particular on the physical side. I'm not the fastest and I was also not the most technical skilled one. I tried on keep dreaming until I probably was like 14 or 15 until I realized I'm not really making it as a professional, so I need to find something else. Okay. 
So how did you jump from that to to eventually with sales? Talk, talk to me about that journey from teenager, what that was like to late 20s. So here I need to start a little bit early onwards when it comes to a little bit of my, my, my family background. My grandfather, so the father of my mom, and my mom died when I was like six months of age, so quite young. But my father, grandfather had a construction business in our hometown for 35 years, from 1960 to 1995. And when he went into retirement, he was handing over that business to my father. It was a really small construction business with around four or five people, not doing like the big development projects, building up big industrial buildings, like small Ooh. things. Maybe like a house once or twice would have been one of the bigger projects, but most of the time it was like really small things, doing a new entrance far away to the house, a new garage, something Ooh. like this. My father took over that business in 1995, 1996. And we had that business in total for seven years until he went actually bankrupt at the beginning of the 2000s. And when he started to become bankrupt, I think the first signs were in, in 2001, 2002, where he didn't have enough projects to keep the company running. There were a lot of new entrants of competitor coming into our region from the former Eastern Germany side who were able to offer labor work at a cheaper price. And we were living right next to the border of Eastern Germany back in the days. And back in the days, the, the salary range was still very different to East, from Eastern Germany to, to, to Western Germany. So my father was struggling a lot on the pricing piece to a point where he didn't have enough pipeline of projects and at some point needed to shut down the company because he couldn't uh, afford paying his uh, employees anymore, couldn't afford paying all the daily operations. And with that, he needed to sell the house where we are from, needed to give up the company and move to a completely different city. I stayed in our hometown, finishing high school by myself, living from the age of 17 onwards, completely on my own, while still finishing high school, working part-time the, at the gas station at a construction site to partly fund my living, and then going normally to school to finish my, my A-levels, right? But that time really shaped me where I realized at the age of 15, 16, I want to go into business later onwards, but not and never as an owner of my own company because I wouldn't want to carry the burden of the financial risk for others, neither my family nor my employees. That really is still one of the burden that I'm carrying inside of myself. But I wanted to be someone who's the guy who makes sure that you constantly have a flow of projects to make sure that you can finance the company going forward. I think this time really shaped me as a human being that later onwards moved into the direction of, of going into sales. And I had to do at that time some very interesting experiences while I was working in summertime for my father. I was working multiple summers as like a, a supporting craftsman in the construction business of, of my father at the age of 14, 15, 16. And I had multiple occasions where I realized I never want to be a guy who's just being paid based on the hour. And there was one occasion that I still have in my mind. My father was driving me to a construction site. And outside of the construction site, which we finished up, there was a big chunk of sand. 
something around 5,000 kilograms. And for my father, it was not economical to bring a big shuffle over to put all of the remainder, the remainder of, the, of the sand onto the truck. So he gave me a small shuffle and said, Christian, I'm paying you eight, hour, eight euros per hour, shuffle all down the truck, and depending on how long you will take, I will pay you for that. And that concept didn't make any sense for me, even when he said it to me. But if I take 10 hours, you pay me 80, and if I do it for one hour, you pay me eight. That doesn't make sense. I never want to be in a situation where I'm trading in time for money. So I rather negotiated with him a price of 40 euros to bring up the entire sand onto the truck. And then I was standing there for two hours in total and just shuffled sand on the truck like a crazy guy while all his workers looking at me and said, why are you working so fast? Keep your pace, don't be too fast. You will be paid anyway. But I said, but if I can do that in one or two hours, I can maybe do other things where he's going to pay me much more. So this was one of the key moments in my use where I realized never trade time for money, always trade performance for money, which shaped then later on what's my decision to go into sales. That's fascinating. It's fascinating insight as well in such a young person to get that because there are entire industries out there, who <laughs> consulting industries typically, professional services, who trade on time for money. And you're right, there's no incentive to be efficient, to do a better job. It's the incentive is to take longer. And it's a perverse incentive, really, when you think about it. Crazy. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the, the consulting part, because when I finished university, first I wanted to become a consultant. As in particular, when you go to business school, Consultancy is that sexy thing that everybody wants to do when they're finishing business school. It's prestige. You have a good reputation. Your family, your friends will look up to you because you're doing something fancy. And I was really close to entering that sphere until I actually got a sales job where I realized I can make much more money there. Plus, I'm the boss of my own destiny and of my own wallet at the end. So I rather went down that route and thank God didn't end up as a consultant. The experience for your father must have been a really difficult one going through that because in many respects, it was outside his own control. And to watch that, particularly because it was a family business as well that was handed to him, it must have been excruciating to watch him go through that. How did he recover from or did he recover from it ever, do you think? I don't think that he ever recovered from that. In particular, when you look into the history of my dad, he was in his mid-twenties when he lost his wife. And from that moment on, his main focus as a guy from the village, not really been out to the world, he wanted to make a difference to his family, to me and my sister, by working a lot and being able to provide. Right. So his entire life was focusing on working. And I remember in particular during the times when he uh, took over the business for my grandfather, my father, even in wintertime, went up, went outside at 4, 4.30 to shuffle away the snow because otherwise you get fined by the municipal. Shuffle away the snow, get back in, drink his coffee, and at 5.30 go to the business, working in construction, then coming home at 5 o'clock, eat, and from 6 onwards going to the office to wipe the invoices or doing the administrative work. So his entire day was just purely focused on work to, in the end, provide for me and for my sister. And when that didn't turn out the way that he was hoping for, I think that really put 
him down personally a lot and had a huge toll on his own self-confidence mm. going forward. And I think up to today, he still never really recovered and looks rather more down when he's talking to someone than up looking back at the history of a lot of accomplishments and achievements. Must be very proud of what you're doing, though. I hope so. Mm. But at the same time, I learned a lot by just observing yeah. him, what he was doing, and I tried to take yeah. a lot of that work ethics on. And I also feel obliged coming from a non-academic background. My sister and I, we were the first ones in our entire extended family who went down the academic path. Mm. But I also feel obliged to, with all the good thing that is happening, in particular our tech industry and, and sales where you can make some good money, to feel responsible for working hard to not only get at the end of the month a paycheck, but also deserving mm. it by putting in the work that is required. It, it's interesting though, just before we move on, just taking a, par a parental perspective on yeah. it, in that sometimes as parents, we sacrifice the present for the future. And we may not do it knowingly, but the what he went through, the pain in many respects paid forward into your life in terms of the fire it's put inside you and therefore he wasn't just building that he was building the future through you and I don't know what your sister's story is but like certainly through you I hope he recognizes that and takes some comfort from that one door closes and another door opens in life sometimes and to be able to see it I know it's hard but anyway so you what I'm hearing is he was a huge source of motivation for you or his story and what happened to him I think more from an observation mm. perspective. I also need to state that my dad is not one of those talkers. He comes from a very humble mm. background. His father was still in the war back in the days. And those guys who came back from the wars in 1995 were not having those big philosophical, no. in-depth psychological conversation with their kids. So showing emotions was never really something huge in my family. Yeah. So the source of inspiration, I think, when I'm looking at my dad, is more by observing mm. his worth ethics mm. rather than a direct conversation and he's being super supportive in what I'm doing. But I think that's true of, of children in general. A lot of it is absorbed through observation. I saw it myself <laughs> and, uh, watching my own parents go through a difficult time with something that had happened to them. And you, as a child, you there's no labels or you don't have the words to understand it or express it. But I think you absorb the energy. And I think that that's a much stronger fuel, if you like, for our own motivations and growth in life. Okay, look, so let's fast forward a little bit then. You go to college, you come out. Talk to me about, you. so I, I think, <laughs> sometimes I ask, you know, where did you discover you wanted to be in sales? I don't think that was your story. I think it was more of, I wanted to be able to not be in a position where I was trading time for money, that I wanted yeah. to to be able to be this position for some, doing something I can scale. And that's for sure is what we can do in, in sales. Talk to me about what it was like for you in discovering what, what sales is about. And let me just give some context for listeners for that, is that my experience, and it's one of the things we, we have to do initially in training, often, particularly with new people, is their perception of what sales is versus what they learn it's all about is different. And I'm curious to know what that was like for you and when the kind of the penny dropped for you is to say, okay, that's, it's not that, it's something else. 
particularly when we talk about the perception of what we think as someone not being in the profession as a salesperson versus what the reality is, of course, it's a huge, huge And I still have that in my background as well, knowing from my dad that you are not selling yourself, you're not selling your product. And I think this is where, in particular, my culture, normally I try to not say cultures are different, countries are different. But in Germany, we have a huge focus on the engineering side. That's why in the European Union, the country Germany still has a huge contribution by the industrial sector, by the industrial sector, where we are still having the mentality of we are producing great products and those base should sell themselves. Look at the cars back in the days, look at those heavy machineries from those big S&B companies that are selling all over the world. We are producing something amazing and hopefully we will find customers for that. Tesla is not didn't became big because they have by far the better product like Mercedes or BMW. They're doing a much, much better sales job at the end. And this is the mentality of how I grew up. You're not like going out to somebody who is a stranger trying to sell a service or the product that you have. So for me, going through that mind shift, that mind, my, my mindset shift was something really hard for myself. And first, I believe that selling is something where you are trying to force someone else buying something from you for your own benefit, which means your own salary or your own pocket. And the more I go into sales, the more I understood that selling is about bringing value together. People who has a problem, companies who have a problem, and helping them solving it by bringing value, yeah. whether it is by a product or by a services. At the end, you want to help someone fixing a problem for that. But I wouldn't under... This is a really interesting one because you, you're absolutely right. In Germany, it's there's an a technical engineering focus. But at some level, that morphs into an emotional aspect too. It's I look at, I have an e-bike, it's German. My motorbike is German. My car is German. My cameras are German. And, and it's funny because Leica is out, uh, uh, outsourced some of their manufacturing, I think, to Portugal. And people wanted to know where was the model built? Was it built in Germany? or in Portugal, even though it was the same brand. And at some level, there is a a security, uh, a, a sense of comfort in knowing that this is going to last. Oh, my washing machines, uh, dishwashers, they're all melee. And there, so, there, so there is something in that at, at some point, engineering excellence is in, has, has its own emotional dimension to it. For sure. I 100% agree with him. I think that's an important point where at some point your engineering excellence can be part of your unique selling point and you can use it for marketing and for selling perspectives, right? And okay. when you speak to your customers. And I think this is something where Germany becomes much, much better in particular in our sales craft to focus in what are we actually good at and what is that emotional relation that we are building up with our existing customers and future customers. And maybe that's a way how we are differentiating ourselves and maybe that's then the reason how we should talk about that topic too. Yeah, for sure. Look, you take Porsche out, any of the BMW, that's pure emotion. And they're, and they're sold that way. Even th So there's the engineering excellence. I think that's the comfort blanket, but it's at some level. There's the, that's the head, but the heart is also. I think a lot of German companies play down the branding, the emotional side. 
but they play to it. There's <laughs> no question about it. I see Leica cameras, which is a brand I, I have a few Leica cameras, and you will pay twice yeah. as much for the same functionality in that camera. And it, 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 you're absolutely right. But I think that's a trend that developed over the last years. Yeah. And where the companies realize much more, we actually have an excellence, we have a brand that relates to people, that is creating some emotional attachment, yeah. and now they are cognitively using yeah. it. If I'm looking from a pure past and uh, how I've been raised perspective, this was not as common 25 or 30 years ago in the perspective of the people. Fair. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think it's something that they've learned along the way. Talk to me a little bit about sales to leadership, what that was like for you and what you discovered about yourself in, in going through that. You mean the transition from being uh, a salesperson to growing into yeah. Into so sales from leadership? IC essentially to where now your success is dependent on others. And probably the success is more for me depending on the customers and the demand in the market at the end because without them, uh, I I, w I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't survive at all. But what, one of the biggest things that I think were important for me was straight at the moment when I started to move into sales at Oracle back in the days. Oracle gave me, and you as well, by the way, so big shootouts to you because you were the first sales trainer and technology that I've ever encountered. And I was really looking forward to, to learn how B2B sales is, is being done. One of the things that I learned at Oracle straight from the get-go, from the beginning is you need to be the master of your own process, which means you have to focus on the efforts that you are bringing in to achieve a certain outcome. That means you can control your attitude, you can control your activities, you can focus on performing activities to a certain quality level to achieve a specific outcome. And the more you are doing that, the more experience you will gather. And with experience, you maybe even build up an entire data set that can tell you over the last four, five, six months, this is what you did with that quality leading to that outcome. At some point, you have a system in place that gives you the comfort knowing if I'm applying tomorrow within one hour those activities and I repeat that over and over, I will get to those results. Yeah. This is something that I've been trained in that I've learned a lot as an IC, which is still up to today my main work approach, trying to break things down now running the entire go-to-market motions from how much money we are spending into marketing, how much can I do as an individual, as a salesperson, to get a specific amount of pipeline? How do I execute every single step to get a deal? What do I need to do with specific customers so they are staying or in the future to upsell? And breaking it down into the course, into the core elements, into the smallest components, and then just focusing on the execution. I think that in itself, it's a system that I've been trained in as an IC, that I'm still taking on as a manager, as a leader, etc. But I think some of the biggest difference between an IC as a lead and as a leader is how do you implement then a system like this that works for you as an IC at a global scale to an entire team and getting the fellowship that you need from the human being working with you. And that transition, man, was one of the toughest things that I've ever experienced in my life. I have actually a fu fun funny story when it comes to that. When I moved the first time into leadership in 2012 at, at VMware, leading an inside sales team, 
I thought I would motivate people by giving them some instructions of how much time per day you should work to perform your activities. And one of the first things that I did when I entered the company is I was conducting a team meeting for all the ICs that I had. And I brought them all into a room. And I was quiet, standing in front of the flip chart, and I was drawing a clock. One, two, to twelve. And then I put a sign in from nine to five. And I asked everybody, do you know what that means? I see his answer. That means nine to five, like a normal workday. And I said, correct. So I put a cross through that and said, this is not what you're going to do. You will work your ass off the entire day until you perform and you are there where you should be. You can imagine the results and the reaction that I received in that moment. I can't. What a dickhead. What a dickhead. What a dickhead. And this is where I realized this is not how you are. This is not how you will get a fellowship and how you can support your people. So it needs to be done in a different way. And at the same time, I did the MBA at UCC. And I had a fantastic professor regarding leadership. And he taught us a sentence that is still stuck with me until today. A theory is an apparatus of your mind. And you can replace theory with the word belief, your value system, or how you've been grown up, which basically is the way that you are functioning as a human being as a consequence of a lot of internal and external input that you developed over time and how you perceive the world right now. And as a leader, it's our core responsibility to figure out what is that reasoning to address the motivational part to help someone reaching his or her potential by understanding their why. Where they're coming from, why they're reasoning, why they're perceiving the world that they do, maybe challenge them, in particular when it's not going the direction where they want to. But first we need to understand what is their personal why before we can come from top with a whip and telling them what to do. How do you do that? I think it's a combination of multiple things. And I try to look here both from a managerial and from a leadership perspective. Managerial perspective for me still means I need as a leader to provide a system to somebody in your team or into entire organization (laughs) that when the person is executing that system leads to a high probability of success. So detaching success from the capability of an IC and rather build out successful motion based on the system. Then from a leadership perspective is conducting a lot of individual conversations about who they are, where they want to be, and where do they stand right now. Who they are, let's first talk about your value system. What are the values that define you as a human being? And in which environment do you excel? Where do you want to be? What are the goals that you have long-term, mid-term, and short-term? And where are you right now? What are the core characteristics and skills that you have right now? And let's compare them to where you want to be short, mid, and long-term. And let's build out a plan together how to get to that point. Mm. So it's a lot of individual conversation from that regard. 
What has surprised you most about listening to those conversations? That the individual motivation differs from person to person and usually is heavily depending on the way how an individual was growing up. Yeah. Talk more about that one in terms of maybe some of the things you've heard that you've, where, where you, the dots were connected for you. Interestingly, just even in our conversation, it was very clear from your opening about you, what you observed growing up, how that influenced you. And I'm just wondering, as you listen to others, there's been a range of stories that you would have encountered. Yeah, to, I'm, I'm, but I, and I'm curious about some of the ones that maybe stand out for you in your mind, obviously without identifying individuals. Yep. I had a colleague in one of my last companies, also living in Ireland, uh, running our big department for an American tech company. And he said to me, I'm only hiring ICs that at least have been married twice. Ha! Well, oh, Lordy, I, I have to hear this story, please. <laughs> we were having lunch and we were talking about hiring criteria. <laughs> and me back in the days was like seven or eight years ago, came up with a catalog of criteria putting a lot of arithmetical, mathematical models behind it, what is important for me because I did some regression analysis of performance with personal traits and characteristics. And at some point he looked at me, dude, what kind of bullshit are you talking about? I only hire men who have been married at least twice because they have so much money to pay on former kids and on their wives. They are motivated as hell to make money. Those are the ones that I'm counting on. <laughs> Wow, there's so much to unpack in that. I'm, we'd need a separate podcast episode just for that alone. Oh my Lord. Yeah, it's sexist. It's, oh Lord, that, that, that's the start. Um, but also, yeah, never mind. Never. So this is, not a, this is not like how you try to uncover what drives something. No, it doesn't. Of course, that could be like one way, which is, but it's very like money focused, whatever. Yeah. But when we talk about what really drives someone, I think it's super important when I meet a new person that is independently mm. of it, somebody who is working as a director in my team or an IC. I first try to sit down and ask them the question, what are the values? That mm. you, what defines you as a human being? Transparency, honesty, loyalty communication, being around people, integrity, whatever it is, I try to find out. And then from there, the conversation goes in the direction. How did that develop? Yeah. How did you as a human being develop your own value system? Were there any events in the past that led you shaping your personality that you say, these are now really core characteristics of my human being and how I perceive the world? Has it been shaped by external influences, family, people around, what you've seen, what you aspire to be. Let's twin into that. So it's a big conversation about, independently of the work, about the human being. What makes you the way yeah. how you think right now and how you feel and perceive information? Yeah. I have no data on this, Christian, but I have a sense that a lot of people go through life without really understanding what really makes them tick. 
And, and what I'm curious about is when you sit down with a, an individual and you're asking these questions, and I, I love the approach to say, what's your values and how did you get there rather than just starting with what motivates you? It's, I, I, I like that approach. But there, mu there, there must be conversations you're having with people who are discovering their true motives maybe for the first time or are bringing them to the surface at least and having that. Talk to me a little bit about that, what that's like uh, as a, first of all, I think there's a tone to that conversation, but I also think it must change the relationship between you and the IC. So I think there are multiple ways of how to approach it. And also sometimes it's depending on the age of it. I can see that there's a correlation with the maturity and the development of the person knowing about their own values, their own motive, their own motivations. Because they went usually through a long reflection process, the older they are. So those conversations are much easier when you're faced with someone who's more mature in the life, but also on the professional side. The less mature, the less professional experience that person has, the harder the conversation. Mm. And I see two kind of people here quite often. In particular, in interviews when I'm hiring SDR, BDR-like positions, you have the ones who are very goal-orientated to know where they want to be. And when I'm entering the conversation, why? They can be very reflective on these were the things that happened to me in the past or observation that I, that I had that brought me to the person that I am right now. And that's why I want to go in that direction. So... A lot of young people actually know pretty well where they want to be and why and where they're coming from, which is very positive. And I don't have the data supporting and hypotheses of the more and the more reflective you are about yourself at a younger age, the more successful likely you will be. I don't have the data on that piece, but it would be a hypothesis for my side and a more natural drive looking for those people who have that self-understanding. And then you have, on the other hand, a lot of individuals who never went through that reflection process. So I'm trying to make it my own responsibility, supporting them in their own self-reflection process by giving them the right means in terms of questioning, support environment to find their own true self that they want to build up their future on. It makes sense. What are you seeing in in terms of the current generation of SDRs, BDRs, young salespeople? What are you seeing that you can point your finger at and say, yeah, that's a real motivator for this generation that may not have been important to you perhaps in the past? Yeah. That conversation, I think it's a difficult one without becoming too subjective in that moment. And we all might tend to be too fast to complain about the new generation that they're too lazy, etc. If I'm comparing myself and some of my peers from when we started 15, 15, 20 years ago, I think the concept of following because we accept the chain of command has been much more prominent. Somebody tells me you have to run there. I was only asking how fast and when do you want it? And then I was running like, yeah. of course, there were some relation to a personal goal that I have, 
but I would not enter into a conversation of requiring the why behind mm. it. I've been raised, you get an order and you follow that and you will execute. What I'm seeing right now more, and if I compare that to my generation, is not necessarily the rejection of order, but more, please help me understand the why behind it. What's in it for me? And if I'm doing that, how will I develop? Not only I, but also what is happening with my external environment around it. So the reasoning behind doing something, I think has been extended by multiple factors about what's in it for me, how does it affecting my environment, other people, the earth, the society, yeah. which becomes more prominent, which we as a leader need to accommodate by giving more means to the work for building up a followership. Yeah. I think that's probably more the difference between back in the days that we need to explain more the why behind why we need to do things. That's not a bad thing though, because, well, I think myself, if I went to a boss back in the day, in fact, I remember doing this now, I wasn't selling at the time I was writing code, but I remember being asked to do something or told to do something and, and I questioned it. I wanted to understand the context for it. And my supervisor at the time was like, just do it. And fortunately, I did have a really good boss. So his manager was there and he heard and he came along and he just explained it. And, and it made all the difference in the world to me. It really did. Just understanding the context. It wasn't that I was challenging my boss's authority. It wasn't that at all. It was just I understanding the context helped me understand the task. That was for me. But I could also understand the if you ask the question, why am I doing that? Or, or sorry, if you asked what's in it for me, you get paid. <laughs> that would be the answer. But I also think what we are saying is that having to explain something, context, the why, the purpose, is a good thing as well because it forces the leader to, to reflect on why he or she is doing something as well. Because if they can't give the purpose or the context right. to it, then maybe they need, they need to take care of that and understand that better before they, they ask other students. So I actually think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's, there's a fine line between entitlement and respect. And I think, yeah, yeah. I think that's where the conversation is. And I, I, I agree with you. The, the part that we were discussing beforehand, as a leader, we need to understand the why mm. of the human that we are working yeah. with and try to accommodate and put it in conjunction what you need to achieve yeah. as a company together with the goals of the individuals. Yeah. And that's why giving context is yeah. so important. I think the, 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 car, the working from home thing is a perfect case for this because there are companies saying, okay, everybody's returning to work yeah. to, to fix building where we're working. And then you'll see people online going, I'm never going to work for a company that requires me to come to an office. And so it's just these two entrenched positions, but there's a good reason why people should come to work for collaboration and, and ideation and so on. But then there's also a, a middle ground where you can have that and have the flexibility. And I think it's that negotiation that is, is paramount, I think, to the su success. I'm sure that's not the only battleground, but it's one that I see a lot from the outside because obviously I, I don't work inside a company. Interesting. Anyway, listen, I want to talk more about you and forget work for a moment. Talk to me when you're not working, what do you do to unwind and relax? I try to actually build up my entire life, not in multiple different components where I'm a different person. 
So I try from the get-go to not differentiate my human being at work to the human being that I am in my family or with a friend or another environment. Of course, there will be scenarios where I'm acting at home completely different because at home I have a boss, which is different to the boss that I have in my professional life. So it's very clear that there are moments where I try to be different. But in general, I try to not be as different as a human being based on the scenario that I'm in. That's why I try not to be so much a human being that is building out his own professional life and his performance based on his stress level. I try to balance everything out no matter in which area I'm currently in as much as possible. So for me, what, what helps me here the most is on the one hand, conducting a lot of sports, which is also back the, based on some of the experience that I made when I was working for my father in a construction company. When I was 14, I was supposed to, to push the wheelbarrow full of cement from the cement machine to the construction workers. And lazy as I was back in the days, I was always overloading that wheelbarrow because I didn't want it to work, didn't want it to walk and didn't do too many routes at once. So I was overloading. And at some point, the entire wheelbarrow fell over and the cement was completely on the floor and on the grass and not usable in that moment. And all the co-workers, you can imagine, were laughing at me, laughing at my dad, what kind of a, a skinny son he has who cannot even push the wheelbarrow. So my father sent me to the storage house where he has all the materials to just clean them for the next two days. And that left a little bit of a scar inside of me. So I said, when I will be bigger, and when I will grow up, I want to be bigger. I want to build up a lot of muscles. So that's why every single morning, at least four to five times per week, I'm going to the gym and do heavy lifting in order to release the stress mentally and to have a counterbalance from, from a body perspective. So you could push that wheelbarrow without falling over. I'm, my father still thinks up to today that look strength is not the same than execution strength. And he still makes fun of me, like saying back in the day, those muscly guys still still were not as strong as he was building up this big, big sacks of, of cement. Uh, but I would say that I would be able to do that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you, the father-son dynamic, he can't beat it. It's, yeah. Classic, classic. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Who inspires you currently? I think that's a really hard question. As mentioned before, and I think inspiration is a dynamic continuum. It depends on the moment in which we are in, the age that we are at, even potentially the moments how we feel in that specific second, which can then give you a different attraction to a specific source of a source of inspiration. Mm. I in generally not have the tendency to be inspired by one specific individual. In particular, if there's an individual that is really far away and you only see the good sides, but then when you meet that person, you're quite disappointed about so many sides that are not being displayed in public, and then you feel disappointed. Can I ask you the question? So what I try... Sorry, sorry hey, Christian, I wanted to just... I wanted to ask you... I, sh I meant to ask the question differently, or I should have asked it differently. Let okay. me ask you this way. What do you take inspiration from? Yeah. Yep. So it depends on what I'm looking at. Professionally, there are a lot of individuals that are the subject matter expert in their field. And if that's an area where I want to get into, I need to make sure that those guys are at least three or five times better in the area where I want to get into. 
so in sales, it's like people like you, John McMahon, the former CEO who wrote the books, the sales qualified leader, multiple of those mm. guys. So when it comes to my professional life, I'm looking after, looking for up to people who've been at in a position or an area where I aspire to be at and those ones that I'm looking for. When it comes to the private life, I'm getting a lot inspired by my wife, who's Russian, coming from a, the south region called Dagestan with a Muslim background. And I'm learning from her a lot the concept of empathy, loyalty, building out the families and having a lot of family values. So currently, a lot in my private life is uh, surrounded by how my wife behaves in a social social context and learning here a lot from her being super inspired by it. I'd like you to say more about that, about the, what has, what it, in, in, in her experience, what do you find attractive in the, their lifestyle, the culture that you see played out in her interaction with the world? What is it you think we in this part of the world should do more of? It would be better for us. I will also tell first the story because I think that fits, fits, fits pretty well in there. When I moved to Ireland for the first time, and I needed to go to work in a bus. And I think it was in Cork when I was driving from Cork City Center to Ballincollig. And I took the bus at six or seven o'clock in the morning. And usually at that time, there's nobody in the bus. So I was going in there. I was the only one sat down. Next day, she, another person came in. Now in Germany, what is happening when there's one person sitting in the bus and somebody else comes in, the person that comes in is trying to sit as far away from the other person to not have any interaction. That was not my experience in Ireland. That person was sitting straight next to me and started an interaction. And after two or three minutes, we even found some people that we have in common and we were laughing and talking about. And this is something that got really stuck with me as someone who comes from a background, in particular family background, where conversations with strangers and talking about emotions, feeling, who do you know, is not that prominent. But I felt naturally attracted to that experience and I felt I want to develop much more in that direction. And my wife is very similar when it comes to that, in particular coming from the former Soviet Union where everything is around, you need to build up a strong environment within your family and the people next to you because when you don't have anything, you need to trade a lot. One person has sugar, the other person has water, the other person has butter. So going to each other, asking for help, engaging in a conversation was quite normal and it's also quite normal for her and seeing her now in the environment where we're living together which is completely foreign for her she's living with me here in germany and being able to speak to a lot of strangers developing really fast close and intensive relations is something that was not normal to me and i'm still not really feeling comfortable from my own personal preferences perspective but I feel inspired to develop in that direction. So to put a huge focus on human interactions with people from all different backgrounds and learn from each other and having good conversation. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's the focus on community and connection that you often see in, often it's the poorer the country, the background. I think that's why in Ireland we developed it for so long. And I think in certain aspects, we're losing it as you get richer as a company as a country, people tend yeah. to go off and do their own things and become very individualistic. Now, again, no data to back that up. It's just a sense. Uh, I remember actually when I lived in, I worked for a summer in Sudwestfolk in Baden. And I lived about five yeah. kilometers away in, with the, and my landlady 
who I rented the room from, she talked a lot about that. She said at the time, this is going back to the mid 80s, uh, she used to visit Greece a lot. And she said that's what attracted her most about Greece was the sense of community, the, the just the relaxed vibe um, that she felt wasn't in her old community. It's, in, it's, it's an interesting sociological experiment in, in some respects. Um, tell me, Christian, I'm just conscious of time and there's a few questions I wanted to ask before I let you go. Uh, if you, tomorrow morning, you didn't, you never had to work again. In fact, you're not allowed to go into a, a corporate environment again. You're financially independent. What would you do with your time? First of all, I would release an album. So going back to some of my hidden talents that I had and what I was doing before I started to study. For eight, nine years, I was rapping. So I started to do music at the age of 13, 14. And I stopped in the mid-2000s when Napster and all those downloading platforms became bigger, realizing that this is not a profession where at that time I would make money. And having a little bit in the hat, I rather decided to go down that professional road. But if financially I would be independent, I most likely will go back to my roots and go to the recording studio, recording music, dropping it and becoming a, a rapper at the late 30s. I, I, I'm fascinated by that. Do you still do it, by the way? Is it, or is, is it something you only do in the shower? Is it something you do you perform for people now? Okay. Haven't performed for anyone since 2007, 2008. So really Do you long. still write? No, I haven't done that. Interesting. Yeah. Very long time. Yeah. An interesting way of actually prospecting for business is to write a very custom rap song and uh, put it on camera and send it to somebody. Uh, it's a little bit dangerous because back in the days I was doing a lot of battle rap and insulting someone in the first interaction and why I think I'm much better than the other person <laughs> might not be the first cliffhanger. Probably not the not a good approach. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. Three final questions. Desert Island. You're marooned on a desert island. You don't know if you've you're <laughs> ever going to be rescued. What one item would you take with you? And it can't be a person. It's wow. a thing. What one thing would you take with you? One yeah. thing. <laughs> My laptop with internet connection. Yeah, but it's a desert island in the middle of nowhere. Do we, I don't know that I, okay, I have to give it to you. I, it's a cheat code, but... Because <laughs> you see, then you can contact people who will come and rescue you. But now, one if there's one item, I will I will make sure that I have good trainers with okay. me, sports shoes, to make sure that I'm staying in shape all the time to live as long as possible by keeping myself in shape, doing running, doing workouts to survive as long as possible. Because it also gives me like a, a counter feeling about the pressure of be, being alone in the mm. okay, very practical on that one. Nice, I like it. Good idea. I have I haven't heard that one before actually. Before I move on, there are no recordings of you rapping by any chance that we could see. Google was releasing in 2010 the possibility to remove entire search histories based on your names. And I was doing that, man, when I was applying for jobs. Really? But you say battle raps, they were serious. They were ones that would come up in an interview. <laughs> I tried to hide my... Okay, wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> Normally it's people with really sketchy pasts do that. Not just rap songs. Wow. There must have been some lyrics. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I might share with you some with you. Yeah, okay, time. that's fair. Your your home is burning down and your fat your wife have if you have any pets, they're they're all safe. Your computer is safe, your phone. You have time to run back in and rescue one item, what would it be? None. Uh, I'm not material. Family is fine. I don't, I don't give a damn. I'm not materialistic. Don't care. Everything else can be restored. Okay. Then final question for you, Christian, is when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? On the edge of the summit. Why did you pick that title? I think it goes in two directions, which I feel my entire life is. It's always the last milestone before I reach the goal that I have in front of me, but never been there because I always want to still have something that I can look up to and want to make sure that I can achieve more. Yet at the same time, on the edge of the summit means you can also fall down a lot and taking the risk and I want to make sure that I'm not always in the safest environment because I know an environment that is not giving you full security is something in yeah. which I strive much more forward so knowing that there is some danger there's something that I need to take into consideration because the negative impact could be bigger helps me developing much more as a human I love that. That's a wonderful metaphor for life. Christian Nick, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute joy to have you on the podcast. Paul, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. 